Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome and today we're going to Windsor, Ontario, Canada to talk to Sarah Sipcar of Sipcar Development, etc., etc., etc. So, Sarah, let's uh, start with your academic background. Where did you go to school? Sure. Uh, I started at the University of Windsor in uh, 2009. I, I did an uh, undergraduate degree in international relations and development studies. Um, I thought I wanted to travel the world and, and uh, do more um, IR stuff, but I ended up doing a master's in political science um, at the same university, at University of Windsor. Um, and ended up studying a little bit closer to home. Um, I did a, a master's thesis on um, public transportation in Detroit. So that got me interested in urban planning and how we um, decide where services go in our cities. So I took a break and I worked as a community development uh, coordinator here in downtown Windsor for about uh, five or six years. Uh, where I worked on, you know, different neighborhood gardens, um, resident advocacy efforts here in downtown Windsor. And um, that inspired me to go back. So I'm now doing my PhD at the University of Toronto, where I am in my, I just finished my second year, which I'm, I'm very thankful for. It's been a, it's been difficult studying virtually with COVID. Um, but I'm really enjoying the process of studying urban planning um, in that way. Okay, so you referred a little bit to some of the jobs you've had, but I'm sure you've had others. So can you comment on that? Sure, yeah. So I, I've done a lot of different things, but I think all of them have kind of centered around wanting to make my community and my neighborhood a better place. Um, so like I mentioned, I worked for the Downtown Windsor Community Collaborative, and that was um, a really um, inspiring and amazing time where I got to work, you know, in the grassroots through a United Way funded um, uh, partnership there. Um, but after that, I started my own. Um, so this was COVID. My contract was coming to an end. This was like in the spring of 2020. Um, and I kind of sat back when COVID started. And I said, what am I going to do? And I'm going to school in the fall, but I wasn't sure if I, um, you know, if I had some other plans and I started thinking about additional dwelling units and secondary suites and um, Windsor had recently passed a bylaw at that time and so I thought maybe I'll build I'll build my own ADU so I built a tiny house in my backyard um, and that started me on a journey of um, consulting so I started Sipcar development as you mentioned um, where I'm a consultant and researcher uh, in the housing space um, here locally in Windsor but then um, through that, I connected with a few individuals um, at Family Services Windsor-Essex, and we applied for a housing supply challenge grant. And now I am leading a national grant uh, around additional dwelling units. And um, we're looking at, uh, we basically have an online tool called adusearch.ca, and we uh, it's a proof of concept here locally for Windsor. Uh, and what we're doing right now is building the tool for all of Canada. So we're targeting the top 100 municipalities uh, by population. And so I'm working with a team all across Canada that um, is doing that. So that's my current role is my, my full-time uh, a kind of a, a research position um, focused on additional dwelling units. Okay. You threw in a term that I'm sure most of our listeners have no idea what you're talking about. Sure. ADU. Yes. 
Yes, I'm happy to explain a little bit more about that one. So uh, ADU is a short form for additional dwelling unit. Um, and there, it's not actually a too new of a concept here in Canada, but they're only becoming more popular and actually um, allowed or permitted um, in the last, uh, I would say, maybe 10 years in particular in Ontario. And what they are, uh, there are other words or other names for them are secondary suites, mother-in-law suites, uh, garden suites. Um, and what it is is essentially um, another unit uh, that is attached to a primary residence that can be rented out or used in a flexible way for, for homeowners. Um, and so that's essentially what I did, but I built one that is uh, not attached to my house. I built a detached ADU. So they're more popular out west. Uh, if anyone is familiar with Vancouver and, and what they have going on with their laneway homes. Um, but essentially, laneway homes are homes off alleys that are detached from the main unit but are connected to, the, connected to them by being on the same property. And so uh, in Windsor, we have uh, additional dwelling unit bylaw that allows for um, two units, which means you can build a basement apartment um, or an, uh, an addition, like an attached unit, and then you can also build a detached unit. So you could build one in your garage. You could build a new one, which is what I did. I built a 430 square foot unit. Um, and then um, that could allow you to, um, you know, rent it out. Um, maybe you have an, a family member that would be helpful to have close by, but you don't want them right in your house. So there's um, a lot of ways to it can be used. And so they're, they're newer in Ontario. They're just being allowed. Some cities still don't allow the detached components of the um, ADU, but um, but uh, yeah, so our, our team is studying those uh, across the country. So hopefully that clarifies things. Okay, that's very helpful. So on your website, you refer to a lot of hats that you wear. But the most important hat that you wear is mother, that you sure, did yes. not include on there. That's true, that is very true. Yes, I have a, a six-year-old. Okay. But you come from a family that applies entrepreneurship skills. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, the first person that comes to mind is my dad. He uh, started a business, I think, when he was 30. Um, I could be wrong on the age there, but um, he started his own tool and dye shop here locally when he was 30. And I was, um, I think I was just a baby. And so I kind of grew up around that environment. Um, I remember, you know, going to his office and, and just hanging out there during the days and stuff. And then um, at the time, my mom helped a little bit as well in terms of being a secretary and, and working some on the admin side of things. So I, I kind of grew up in that, um, in that environment, uh, but it didn't stop there. I think that, um, you know, now later in life, um, my mom went back to school when she was uh, in her 50s. She, you know, had a stable job at the school board and thought, you know what, I want to go back to school and get my master's degree um, in counseling so that she could open her own private practice. And so I've learned a lot just seeing my, my parents take leaps. And, and so I think that I was um, maybe subconsciously inspired by all of that. And if I hadn't seen those examples early on in life, maybe I wouldn't be this um, prone to risk taking as a lot of people have told me, I, I take too many risks. But um, I like to think that uh, we, need, we need entrepreneurship, we need people innovating and doing new things. And so I kind of got to a point where I said, why not me? So that's, that's how I got here. <laughs> well, that's terrific. So having said that, you talked about we the team. So you are working with other people on this project. Yes. Yeah. I have an amazing team. I, uh, so currently we're, 
We are funded through Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, and that funding goes to Family Services Windsor-Essex, which is our local uh, homelessness and housing agency led by um, Joyce Suck. Uh, she's been amazing and incredibly supportive of, of myself. And then my co-lead on the project is uh, Fraser Fathers. Uh, he's a local researcher as well, and he's sharing his time with us and uh, the University of Windsor right now, but he's worked in a bunch of the nonprofit um, community development space. And so him and I are the co-leads on the project. And then we have a project manager locally um, as well. Her name's Katie Reno. She's been amazing. And so we kind of, the three of us are kind of the leads on the on the project here. But then we realized that because we're going to be, you know, scaling this thing nationally, we need to be looking nationally in terms of um, talent and, and people that could be on the project. And so um, we have a team of about, I want to say at this point, four full-time uh people um it's gonna oh no sorry six we're at six full-time people and um and it's going to be, I think, at seven. And we have some students uh, from the Toronto region, and, and they're kind of situated all over Canada. Uh, we did have a couple out west, but now I think they're all back in eastern Canada. So we're, we're more concentrated over here. But, um, you know, with COVID and just the technology that has um, proliferated over the last five or ten years, we're able to work virtually almost seamlessly. So, you know, we have meetings daily. We pop in and out of our quote-unquote office, which, you know, just – checking in and, and chatting with one another. Um, and uh, so that whole team is is kind of dedicated to different regions and uh, discovering different parts of Canada. So I'm really fortunate. And they're all really um, creative and uh, really have a high energy, which is really great. When you work with a good team, it makes the work so much better. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that. So talk about partnerships and the importance of them in terms of doing this project. Right. And um, yeah, I, I, I just thought of that as you were as you were saying partnerships. We're also working with Parallel 42, who is a web development company here as well. Um, they've been a great partner on the project. They've helped us, you know, conceptualize what we can do in this space. You know, when we I, I, I thought this I thought we were on a research grant, but sometimes it feels more like a tech startup <laughs> where we're where we're trying to figure out how to make all the moving parts come together and how to problem solve and troubleshoot. And so. Um, having solid partners like them, uh, also the University of Windsor, we've worked closely with um, the Cross Border Institute and also the Center for Cities um, with their expertise, um, particularly with the Cross Border Institute, they have a lot of um, GIS expertise. And so if people are unfamiliar, that's um, geographic information systems. Um, I've learned so much through this process. I'm not a tech person. I'm not a, a web uh, development person. And so learning a lot on the GIS side of things and relying on those partners has been essential because I, I could not do this project on my own. I just don't have the, the skill set. So um, I'm thankful for other people stepping in and, and saying, no, no, this is what we should do and then heading in that direction. So um, it, basically partnerships are critical to the success of it for sure. But you're also a politician. Explain that. Oh yeah, yes, you know I didn't I didn't mention that hat. I forgot about that. I tend to forget about that one sometimes. But I'm actually a trustee with the Greater Essex County District School Board. Um, so that's our our local public board. Um, in uh, in 2018, I decided to throw my hat in the race. Uh, just locally, my daughter was going to be starting school, and we had had a number of potential school closures in the area. Um, in my neighborhood, and um, and we also had school closures in in our city, like broader and I was really concerned that they were going to start closing schools uh, they meaning the board and 
Uh, not only that, um, I wanted to make sure there was an equitable investment of, um, you know, resources into our community. And so um, I, I decided to throw my hat in the race. And so that's kind of like the, the part time on the side there um, that I do. But, um, you know, during COVID, it became very, very um, uh, difficult. Uh, you know, education at that time was really challenging with your your kids at home. I had my daughter at home for a lot of it. Um, you know, their learning is severely compromised because they're not interacting with their teachers and their friends. Um, and so I saw that kind of firsthand. And so I think we're doing our best uh, to recover. And so it, it was a challenging few years, but our, our senior administration there has been really phenomenal at um, at, uh, at, at kind of steering the ship in the right direction. And, and I'm glad that we're coming out of it now um, to what feels like a more normal time, even though there are some pending um you know, COVID wave. So it is challenging still, but, and we're still reeling from it, but those two years were really difficult for sure. So with that political experience, when are you going to become prime minister? Oh, <laughs> um, I can't say, I, I don't know about that. I, you know, I really love, I mean, I did a degree in political science. I really love um, both the academic kind of study of it, but also the on the ground stuff, you know? So uh, I have, I have I don't have any intentions at this point that I can say to run for uh, prime minister, uh, but uh, I am I am very dedicated to making my community a better place. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's it's a difficult job. It's been really difficult during COVID. It's been difficult with a lot of the polarization um, that has happened over the last um, couple of years. But um, uh, I can't say that I've I've I fully hated all of it. it. You know, it's it's a it's a privilege to you know represent your community in that way. So. So SIPCAR development, three years from today, what's it going to look like? You know, I, I started SIPCAR development with the desire to um, showcase the other sides of development that are not always talked about and also um, start different conversations um, that are kind of within but also adjacent to the development industry. And I'll have to say that I got sidetracked a little bit by this this very large research grant, which is part of it because we're trying to show that development doesn't just look like, you know, single family homes built in a greenfield development. You know, development looks like, you know, me creating a community garden for uh, my neighborhood. It looks like uh, me building a tiny house so that I have another, you know, income stream and, and also contributing positively to my neighborhood. And so um, in, in an indirect way, this grant really fits with that. And so I did take on a number of development projects um, in the community as well for different clients that were around missing middle housing, um, residential um, infill development, you know, uh, you know, apartments above commercial storefronts, et cetera. But I've had to um, take a step back from those because of this research project, because it's been so large. And so um, I, I'm really grateful for it because it's been a really um, amazing experience. Uh, but I do hope that I can continue to showcase the different sides of the development, how it can be done differently, how the box sometimes that we put ourselves in as municipalities that we can kind of break out of. And so I hope to be doing more projects and, and having a bit more of a presence in terms of um, showcasing some of those uh, in, in, you know, the next half decade or so. So how many communities will you be in in three years? So with the, just, just speaking to the ADU search project, um, with that, we are, we're going to, for, for that project, we're looking at targeting a hundred municipalities. So we have a plan that we're trying our very best to stick to. Um, so we, we would be in, you know, across the whole country in terms of that. Uh, for my own development uh, purposes, for if I'm doing, you know, some um, 
you know, small scale projects like um, tiny homes, things like that. I don't anticipate being on be, being beyond the Windsor region. Um, I really love this region and I have, you know, grown up here. So um, I hope to continue doing ADU developments and things like that here locally as well. But having said that, you're developing interest in other communities. Yeah. And so as a result, you could do training and uh, advising other communities across Canada. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. I've, I've thought about that as, as we develop, um, you know, some regions in the country have very developed uh, ADU and secondary suite ecosystems. Um, you know, if you go to Edmonton, uh, my sister's living there currently, so I, ha I have some friends there, so I, I tend to, you know, pay attention to what's going on there. Um, they have um, a larger ecosystem. They have YEG Garden Suites, for example, where they've started a whole nonprofit organization to promote additional dwelling units. Um, Vancouver, with their laneway homes, they have like, you know, over, I think it's like 1,500. So it's like there's a bit more development there um, happening. Uh, here in Ontario, though, you're right to say that there is a lack of, of, uh, of I say, knowledge uh, generation. Um, and people are starting to go in this direction. I've seen um, some great, um, you know, uh, companies or, I guess, uh, organizations like, I think it's Sweet Editions, uh, a few others that uh, really target, you know, teaching people about how to build ADUs, how to be um, in the development world. And um, and so, yeah, that could be a pathway. And I think also even with ADU search, we've talked about how, you know, with all of the data, with all of the zoning bylaws that we're collecting um, across the country, there's been no project of this scope on additional dwelling units specifically. Um, when we pitched the idea to CMHC, um, one of their um, their correspondents said, this is like the black box. We don't really know anything about additional dwelling units because a lot of communities, they proliferated kind of uh, under the radar. They they were illegal or not authorized, um, whereas um, out west they've been more uh, legal, but we still don't have data on them. We don't know how they affect property values. There's been some studies that have come out in the last few years, but we don't know how they affect um, neighborhood fabric. We don't know how many units we could even actually have. And so our project is designed really to look at the backyards um, and develop an automated system that we can calculate how much buildable area do we actually have, um, how many people or how many um, lots would uh, qualify based on their zoning and their building type, and then from there, um, you know, what would be the, the tax implications? What would be the assessment implications? And so um, I'm kind of going in a roundabout way to say there's a lot that we don't know. And so, yes, you're right. There's a lot of opportunity there in terms of research, um, you know, having people involved in that space, even just building ADUs to show this is how they can be done in, with the Ontario Building Code. This is how they can be done over here. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about that kind of uh, horizon, as, I guess. So, Sarah, if you, somebody had a farm and had a lot of land, you could create an awful lot of ADUs on farm property. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's different ways to look at them. Like, so I think, you know, right now we're at a point where the housing market is um, really tight. It's very stretched and it's very difficult for people to enter um, at the lower threshold because the threshold has been in, has increased so significantly. And so 
you know, if you had a farm um, with all this land to just have one house on it, um, is that the is that the best use of land? Now, some urban planners might say keep farmland, keep the green space. Don't ever, don't ever, you know, get rid of farms because they're actually really essential to our um, our urban life. Because if we don't have you know sufficient green space to grow food and and you know truck it into our cities, then we might not survive. <laughs> but um, if if I had like a you know kind of like a uh, I think to your point, like a big chunk of land, um, what would I do with it? Um, I think I would look towards the needs of the residents and what they would want and what the community needs would be there. And maybe that is a bunch of smaller dwellings that are tiny homes that could be, you know, put closely together, have some kind of supportive community element to all of it. Um, maybe that's, you know, one building that has, you know, uh, several units attached and it's maybe a co-op format. So like the ownership model is a little bit different. Um, maybe it is a community land trust that has a significant portion dedicated to farm tr uh, farmland. Um, there's a lot of options, I think, with those kind of projects. And so if I, if I were to participate in some of those, my, my role in the development um, uh, roles that I've played on certain projects has been really around community relations and knowing and investigating what the neighborhood needs, really hearing from the neighborhoods, understanding, you know, what I think, what I think would work because based on the existing character and, and things like that. And so um, that's kind of been the role that I've tried to take on developments. And so I would continue that in a project like that as well. So a gentleman from uh, the Windsor area who did a presentation at one of our social innovation challenges on agrihood. Right. And uh, the cool part about that is an example in the U.S., where a group of uh, millennials bought houses around a farm. Right. And then they worked the farm as part of what they were doing, and some of the product went to them, and some went to the food banks in the area. So that, that's kind of an interesting model, too. So have you... Have you looked at uh, 3D printing of dome houses at all? Well, I I, I haven't. Actually, I just heard um, Fiona Coughlin on the um, radio this morning again, and I know that her and I have connected in the past around this. Um, so uh, locally, for those uh, who might not know that name, she's the executive director of um, Habitat for Humanity, and they just did the first 3D printed house um, here in Leamington. And... I've thought a lot about that. Um, you know, in California, they're starting to do, um, you know, pretty much ready-made ADUs or ready-made tiny homes where it's basically you can just like plop it down in someone's backyard, connect it to the services, and then you're good to go. Um, and and we're, we're a little bit a ways away from that. Still, our construction industry already has supply chain issues, but we're, we're a little bit further away there. Um, but 3D printing is really exciting um, because um, it allows for those types of innovations to happen um, and happen really quickly. I think the thing that I think about with 3D printing is like, wow, that can happen very fast. Um, and so, and not only that, we don't need to be bogged down by all the construction industry supply chain woes. Um, not, and that's not to say exclusively that it, you still wouldn't have other complications, but I think any time that we're developing new ways to build homes in faster, more controlled environments um, where you don't have to, you know, coordinate all these different moving parts, um, that would be, that's kind of, I, th I, I think, 
where I find um, that building kind of side of things really interesting. Um, I didn't mention I am I am involved with Laneway Homes as well here locally, where that's part of my SIP card development um, work is is to help um, consult on some of these ADUs. And I see all the coordination that it takes to build a house. The conventional building can can you know be a bit cheaper at this current moment, um, and it's better you know in terms of um, our local industry, but. Um, it has some limitations, you know, there's weather, there's um, coordinating all the trades, uh, whereas when you can have 3D printing or you can have um, other things. And so I'm, I'm very inspired by that kind of work. And I think that it can definitely be something that we apply to um, additional dwelling units. Well, here's something that may be a bit of a curveball. Um, one of the things that Community Innovation Hub does is work with communities of faith where they have unused space. And there's a Mennonite church down your way, and I, uh, I spoke to them about repurposing their church. So they were using 18% of their space, 18%. Right. right. But outside, they had four acres of land that was totally unused. Right. Four acres. So I guess what I'm trying to raise is the issue of connecting with communities of faith who may have an interest in ADUs on the incredible amount of property that they have. That's a that's a great point, and you're not throwing me a curveball at all, actually. Um, I've, cons- I've talked to several churches around this. I actually was approached by a group called Parish Properties, who wanted to do just that is really activate the space of um, of churches, and I think that's a, an amazing um, endeavor and also opportunity. I think uh, I come from the church world. My brother actually works for a, a, a church currently, and um, I've I've always felt this way that churches need to have open doors to their communities and be welcoming places, and um, and also meet the needs of their surrounding communities. And um, one of our needs right now is is housing. Um, and churches are often um, very um, rich in land, and and likely they they outright own their buildings or they don't have a mortgage, um, and that would allow them to borrow against themselves and actually develop new units that then they could charge at rent at you know either below market rent or um, even you know with some kind of subsidies things like that um, because they're not paying their debt servicing costs on the actual land and property they already own it they might have a construction loan and that cost actually built so I've I've I actually I've been consult I've been asked about a church here locally and I wish that I could have take the pro- taken on the project but I just didn't have the capacity but I'm always um, really inspired when churches are thinking in that direction. And, and quite frankly, we need more planners um, and architects who are willing to think outside the box and work with those communities. Because one of the things I found, too, is that they're often they don't have a ton of money, but they have a lot of uh, sweat equity. They have a lot of people who can help and do work and, um, you know, really uh, volunteer their time to make those things happen. And so you need to kind of think outside to think, okay, how can we can make, make this happen beyond just the dollars and cents? How can we can, you know, put together a patchwork of people? And so I've had a few, and I actually know of a, a church here locally that has went through the process of um, rezoning in order to add an additional uh, dwelling unit on their property. And so I, I don't know where they're at with it. Um, uh, if they've, if they've kind of uh, broken ground yet, but um 
yeah, a, wind, a, a church with four acres, there's so much you could do. That would be an amazing, um, amazing opportunity. And I hope that any churches who are listening that, um, you know, that they're considering those things because we are in a housing crisis and there's a lot that can be done on those uh, spaces for sure. And the United Church, you may not know, is the second largest landholder in Canada. I actually did know that. I did know that. And okay. and I it's because I come from the church world and churches are just sitting on a phenomenal amount of land. Right. And um, it's amazing to me because nobody saw that. I don't think people really realize the impact of that in our communities. Um, but what can be done with it? You know, what can yes. be done with those spaces? They don't need to be just um, for, you know, used at 20% capacity. They can be used at full capacity if we just maybe think about churches a little bit differently, if we reimagine them. So, Sarah, you do a lot of things. You're passionate about what you do. You give back to community, which is terrific. So how do people learn more about you? What's your website? Sure. Yeah, I have a website right now called, um, it's just sipcar.ca, C-I-P-K-A-R.ca. Um, I, I, I'm actually not great at updating it as much as I would like. I did have a blog going, but when school started with COVID and everything, I, I, I haven't updated it as much as I would like, but I do have actually one piece kind of sitting and waiting right now that I need to post. So thank you for the reminder, <laughs> but, uh, you can kind of get in hold of me there. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Sipcard development. Um, I try to keep up on, um, you know, posting pictures, things that's going on in the community. Um, and then, I mean, even if you just Google Sarah Sipcar public board, I come up there as well. So um, I'm always happy when people reach out like yourself. I know that you just kind of uh, sent me an email and, and I'm always willing to, to chat and, um, you know, give people information and help where I can. Well, thank you for your time. You and your daughter need to go out and go for a run. <laughs> if you can keep up to her. And, I try, I try. <laughs> and and have fun because it's good weather today. And enjoy yourselves. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Peter. I appreciate uh, having uh, having me on your podcast. So thank you.